ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, TerraMaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. TPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV damper with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Today on ATV Talk, Inspired, we have Danny Ray Duncan and Danny Ray Duncan II. Um, Welcome to ATV Talk Inspired, Danny. How are you? I'm fine. Well, thanks for joining us today. Danny Ray, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Well, I know you you came a long way to to sit down and be with us in studio today, and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, Not everybody knows that you are a college professor and work in a hospital. Um, Most of our fans that do know you know that you were um, tagging along to the races and you raced some and you did some other stuff with your dad. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you do now. Um, So about a year ago, I would say, maybe, yeah, just about a year ago, I got... uh, asked by Idaho State University if I'd be interested in being one of the directors of the respiratory therapy program. And after a lot of thought, I, I took it. It's been great. We, we, uh, we have a really good program. We're building right now more. Um, and then I work let's in the a, hospital as Let's well. elaborate a little bit more on what are you building more of? And what exactly do you do? So I not only I do I teach the classes, but I run all of the clinicals. Um, meaning, when you go to school to become a respiratory therapist or a nurse or even a doctor, um, you have to go to work at the hospital for free and do clinical hours. And uh, I set up all the clinical sites, keep the relationships with the clinical sites, as well as I teach and and help run the program. Right now, what we're doing is, is we just got approved for three more rooms and a closet. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, we went from one classroom that's about 50 foot by 30 foot to three classrooms that size. 
and uh, a separate office for us and a utility closet for us to store all of our stuff. And we have some of the, the most state-of-the-art equipment now. And we are in the process of building an ICU for both, all three phases, the adult ICU, the pediatric ICU, and the neonatal ICU. And this is all for respiratory therapy? Yes. And so, so respiratory therapy being the function of the lungs or, or oxygen saturation? We do a, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Well, but, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, we, we mechanically ventilate patients. That's our main bread, bread and butter. We can do a couple more advanced things like ECMO, which is where you completely bypass the heart and the lungs, and you put a catheter either in the art, artery vein or vein vein or artery artery, and you completely take over the function of the heart and the vein or the heart and the lungs itself, and we we're in complete control of the body. They do that a lot for cardiac bypass surgeries and a lot of other stuff. We can put chest tubes in and breathing tubes in or a few other things. Grandpa's getting a little excited. He's thinking, all right, I don't even have to work to keep going. <laughs> uh, you can only stay on ECMO for so long. and then You, know, you, you never too. know. I mean, you, you may perfect it so it can be long-term, right? Yeah, I won't I'm that smart, but... Uh, it's already pretty pretty dang good for what it is. I think it's sometimes underutilized in certain issues, certain times, and overutilized other times. You know, but I've seen it be really effective, and you know, obviously, it needs we need to have it for for surgeries, for heart surgeries. But uh, you know, I watched it save a a, a young woman who had taken too much Tylenol and it was going to kill her and we put her on ECMO and and she made it. You know, breathing tubes, I, I, you know, putting one on a mechanical ventilator, I, I see it all the time. Uh, both ways, they make it or they don't, you know? <laughs> so, the kids and the babies do tend to do a little bit better, thank God. But with with the breathing mechanical mechanical ventilation, yeah. So when, when I say mechanical ventilation, it, it it's we are sedating the patient. Sometimes we paralyze the patient, and we put a tube, what they call an endotracheal tube, down somebody's throat into their lungs through their vocal cords, and we completely control their breathing. And then we have to slowly wake them up, wean them off, and pull the tube out. And I would say we're pretty good at it at the hospital that I work at, um, at Ermac. Is it painful? Never had it done to me. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't that be like a prerequisite? If you're going to do it to other people, you should have to at least experience it? Uh, we do that with other things. We make them feel everything else, but it's a little, little touchy when it comes to intubating somebody. I can tell you that it's probably not comfortable, but we don't fully, like we fully wake them up, but we have stuff that can we can help them with, with their anxiety or 
them gagging on the tube, and so somebody's thought thought it out, but that's way smarter than than you or I, I guess. Well, I teach them how to do it. Like we, te- I teach them how we have to wean to extubate, and it was already thought of yes before I got there. But I mean, all respiratory therapists have to learn how to wean and extubate a patient. So, so what was going on over the last few years with um, the, the COVID? You were in high demand, I take it. Yeah, so right now in the United States alone, we have 22,000 open respiratory therapy jobs. Uh, at least that's the number that I saw last time I checked. It could be more, it could be less. But, yeah, I mean, it was very, if I didn't have a wife and kids, I could be, I could do very well off right now based off the contracts and stuff like that that they were giving. Really? Yeah. Yeah, the... One of the contracts I got sent was $7,200 a week after taxes for 13 weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, $28,000 a month for three months. You can extend if you want. And within that, that's just working three shifts, meaning three 12 hour shifts. You pick up an extra one, it's an extra, you know, 2500 bucks. You can make 10 grand in a week. In Texas, they were given contracts for ten thousand dollars a week. Wow! So that's how how much in high demand respiratory therapists are in in the country still, or were at the time. Um, I think it's it's fading back down to more realistic numbers. Meaning, you're not going to get a ten thousand dollar a week contract, or um, not going to go, not going to get a. Uh, Seven thousand dollar a week contract either. They're back down to like three to four thousand dollars a week after taxes, and maybe a little higher depending on where you go. Do you think that money is the incentive for the the people that would take that job, or is it something that really has to be passionate about? <laughs> Life saving. I mean, you you don't have to. I mean, if you're just passionate about life-saving, you can save a life for less money at a hospital. Like, money talks, to be honest with you. I mean, let's be honest. I, I know people who did go to do contracts like that, and they're great therapists, and they want to save as many lives as possible, but when you get an opportunity to make $10,000 a week, it's really hard to turn that down. I got offered one to, I can't remember exactly where it was, but to somewhere, and Jolene and I, and my wife and I, had sat there and we were like, man, <laughs> this is really hard to turn down. And it, was, it wasn't quite 7,000 because those were in New York and Texas that they were offering those, but it was, it was really hard to turn down because, I mean... Make what you make in a year in three months. Sometimes, you know, depending on a contract, you have the rest of the year to make uh, more money. So that's crazy. Let, let's get back on track. I mean, it's always, we can always talk about money, but um, let's get a little deeper into, you know, what goes into a, a class. To teach that, is, is there a desired level that you start with, 
or do they come to you already knowing a portion of what they need to know? So every program is different, but uh, with our program, they need to know medical terminology and they need to have their anatomy and physiology classes taken care of. And then we expand on that. So we start off with patient assessment. So how do you take what you learned in A&P and add on to that? as well as figure out how to fix the issues. It's just like you with a quad. You, you know, somebody comes in and they're like, oh, it's it's missing in third gear at half throttle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't give you a lot, but then you can, you can do your assessment of the quad and you kind of know what to do based off of what they told you. Do your assessment of the quad. Well, we do assessments of humans and then we select a therapy that we think is going to best help them or it's kind of the same thing we we bring the machine in we do our evaluation our assessment yeah you know we check the heart by doing a leak down test on the four stroke you know compression on the two stroke so on and so forth and and, you know there's protocols in our world just like protocols in your world yeah 100 percent. so we we do uh cardio everything cardiopulmonary so heart and lungs is our two main bread and butters. Uh, I like to tell my students that the difference between a, a respiratory therapist and a nurse is the nurses are okay with poop and the RTs are okay with sputum. You know, it, it doesn't bother me when somebody hucks a loogie, but I could not wipe somebody's butt. <laughs> I, I just couldn't. I mean, you have a... You know, the joke is is that you, you have a pool full of poop and you have to get in it and tread water. You have somebody stand on the outside of the pool and huck a loogie down at you. And the nurses will duck into the poop and the RTs will just take that loogie right to the face. <laughs> We're good with it. I'm, I'm okay with not having to deal with poop at all whatsoever. <laughs> I still do a little bit. I mean, I help my nurses roll the patients and watch my tube while we do that and you know I, you can't fully get out of it just like the nurses can't but at the same time you know that's a lot of people's deciding factors on which one they choose to go into oh uh, your your my wife Terry deals with a lot of the uh, both ends I guess in her line of work so you, you, you got one up on me because I'm not going to deal with either <laughs> I'd rather would deal with dirty oil and, and and dirty air filters and and you know stinky stinky clutches things like that are okay by me. Yeah, I I don't mind that either. So, well, you just get used to it. Honestly, I I will say that now that I'm full time at the school and not full time at the hospital, that it's a little bit different to where it's, <clears throat> I don't know how to put it. With COVID, we just dealt with so much death. You kind of come numb to it. We're just like, eh, you know, and, and RTs are the ones that pull the plug. You know, that, that plug, that breathing tube that's keeping somebody alive. I, I or other RTs are the ones that uh, pull that out. You know, nurses turn off their meds and whatnot, but essentially that plug that's being pulled is being pulled by the respiratory therapist. You become numb to it, you know, you compartmentalize it and you just get through your day and and you, I, 
I don't even know how to explain it. I used to, I've had a few cases that have bothered me, obviously, but um, just the cycle of life. Right? Yeah, it is. And when you get out of the hospital setting for a while and then you come back to it, you know, I wasn't out of it for a while, but I hadn't dealt with death for a while at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And the next one you do, you're like, oh man, I haven't done this in a while. This is why is this bothering me so much? You know, is it? Is it? Do they offer counseling for you guys? For you, um, as far as because I'm I'm sure that it's uh, there's got to be like PTSD from the overwhelming amount of stress that you were under during that time frame. Uh yeah, they do. I've never really taken them up on it, but yeah, they do. I I'm sure you just. I don't know, just got to get over it. There's nothing you can do. I mean, we've done everything that we can do. You know, when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. That's what your grandfather says. <laughs> when your time's up, time's up, you know? Yeah, well. When your clock runs out, there, there's nothing you're going to do about it. You just hope that you got talented people trying to... Not pull the plug. (laughs) Safety where that plug in. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that our maker is going to let you safety wire that in. Uh, So we were talking about death or when the time comes. Uh, The Spartans. You ever heard the term "punch your ticket"? Yeah. So you know where that comes from? No. So the Spartans used to give all of their soldiers a ticket, and when they would go into battle, they would rip the ticket in half, and half would stay with the soldier, and half would go with the um, servants or whoever would hold on to the other half, I can't remember. And then at the end of battle, they would have the names of everybody on those tickets, and they would read out the names, and that's how they would know if you made it back from battle or not, that was their way of head counting. It was a ticket. And if you didn't come back, you punched your ticket to heaven. Or Valhalla, or whatever they called it. Yeah, I can't remember what the Spartans... I think they called it Valhalla. No, I thought it was the Vikings. The Vikings called it Valhalla, too, but a lot of them called it Valhalla. A lot of the Spartans, I don't believe, thought there was a god. They thought once you were died, you were done thought there was a heaven or an afterlife or anything like that. They thought there was gods, but I don't think that they thought that there was an afterlife. No, I sure hope there is. I hope there is too, but I was just saying what the Spartans do. <laughs> Let's just hope they're not punching my ticket for many, 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 many years to come. They did? Right. I just thought it was an interesting fact. So, tell us more about setting up a class, because your grandfather used to be a teacher, and he used to teach small engine repair. What What's it like for you? Because you're still young, and you're not that far out of school age. Um, what's it like teaching young people in, in that environment, and how do you set your courses up? So I can tell you that uh, I am actually, Johnny and I both are the youngest directors of any program in ISU history. Oh, and we're two of the youngest directors probably 
in the country. I mean, at 30 years old, to be a director of a of a program at a major university is not very likely for you to be able to get. But in that instance, it's and sometimes some parts of it make it easier, and some parts make it harder with the age thing. Um, sometimes I have students that are well older than me. It's it's nice they they come in they do their work or anything. I just think that it it it's probably hard knowing that you know somebody that's younger than you is in a position that you might ultimately want to get to or so that part's hard and the other part of it with the younger students they uh I I haven't ex- really experienced either way with that but. It, they uh they might not respect you as much because you think they think of you as like an equal, you know? Like they're you're younger. I don't know how to explain it other than you're younger, so they think that they can talk to you like you're one of the boys, I guess, you know. So you they don't consider you to be in the position of authority. Correct. Correct. Not, I haven't experienced that yet, but I, I'm waiting for it to come because even when we do stuff outside of the college or outside of the classroom, people will ask Johnny and I, what are you going to do when you graduate? Oh, no, no, I'm the, I'm the director. I already graduated this program. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> what do I stick my foot now? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I get it. It doesn't bother me or offend me. I, I, I honestly, uh, it's, it's a compliment, right, Grandpa? Yeah. I mean, at thirty years old, I did not believe I would be in the position that I'm at. Exactly. Yeah. I remember when you were charting your way through the picking this this uh, line of of work and I was a little concerned because nobody that we had dealt with in, had been in the medical field. Yeah. I I really wanted to be a doctor. I, I, I did. I really wanted to be a doctor. But... Yeah. Elaborate. Well, I... I started uh, pre-med and doing everything in Iowa or I went to the University of South Dakota for pre-med and I was not close to being done but I was going through it and then uh, Grandpa actually got diagnosed with cancer and I just couldn't imagine uh, something happened to him, so I dropped out of pre-med and my biology courses and packed up my grab and moved home. And then when I moved home, I never uh, signed back up for school and... Just stayed as an RT. Yeah, I just stayed as an RT, and 
I don't know. I guess some of it was probably fear. Fear, fear of failure. Um, looking back on it, I wish I would have probably continued, but I'll still probably get my doctorate. Just not be a medical doctor. So now that I have three kids. Yeah, you promised me that, so I'm counting your eye. I have that in the little book that you're going to get that. So yeah, you, you don't have a choice but to uh, make that happen. Um, you've spent most of your life around mechanics um, and being different forms of it, from watching what your family has done to being a racer and working on your own machine. How much of what you learned in your younger world and in, in your your first career um, or your family's livelihood, how much of it rolls over into what you do? How much did you learn that, that helps you in in your line of work today? I, I think the main thing is, is the fact that, I don't know, when you and Grandpa and Uncle Warren, none of you ever let me make a mistake. <laughs> You know, you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to stuff on the bike, and, and you sure better pay attention to what's going on with the patient. You legitimately have somebody's life in your hand. Um, you can't think that at the time. You just have to do what you got to do in the moment. But paying attention, and, and a lot of it's math with mechanics, or I equate it to math, and uh, being a respiratory therapist is a lot of math. Being in the medical field is a lot of math. Scientific math, scientific formulas, you know. You would think that uh, it would be pretty easy, but we have alveoli sacs in our lungs is where oxygen and CO2 exchange happens. Well... We also have, that's where gas exchange is in the body, such a carburetor. But we also have a bunch of dead space, meaning a lot of where you're not producing, you're not performing gas exchange, you still take that volume in. So you still take that amount of gas in, but you're not, it's not, it's not firing in the sense of making the bike run. Does that make sense? Well, so, I mean, what, that's what's waste. Yeah, essentially. So wasted space. And that's from your nose all the way down to those alveoli sacs is what we call anatomical dead space. So we give a patient a volume, but we have to understand that we're giving them that volume, but only so much of it's going to interact with gas exchange, and then we take that volume back and we're not we're not always thinking of that, so teaching that can be hard. But that I don't know. Every every time you do that for every patient, it's a different bed volume or an unused. Volume. It's based off height. So yeah. So it'd usually like be like working on different bikes. Okay. You know, you just I don't know, different disease processes can be like different bikes. I I don't know. I never thought of it. To, that way with comparing it to mechanics or are there any other like are there any trans transfer of methods as far as work ethic things like that that, that, that you use 
in your everyday work that, that you were that you learned working on ATVs? Oh yeah, I mean, I was just working work, learning work ethic itself. I mean, Grandpa over here is, works every day and probably can outwork half the half the people I know. And uh, yeah, that's definitely something. Working smarter, not harder. Something that Grandpa definitely taught me as well. We don't use come-alongs or pulleys, but you know. No, we use tools for all trades. Yeah, you you just have to figure out what tool you need at what point. I mean, I like knowing what job I'm going to do, and your grandfather taught me at an early age, hey, if you know what the task is, take the tools with you so you don't make 40 trips. With the walk back, every time you take three steps to that toolbox and three steps back, that's three steps more than you need to take, or six steps more than you need to take. You take a handful of tools with you the first time, you know, and if there's a specialty item or something like that, I mean, I don't know how it works in real life, work if you have everything right there. So in the ER, most places have everything right there, but when you're in a patient's room, not always, and respiratory equipment's usually stored in the respiratory room itself. I I look at the patient's chart, and that tells us kind of what we're going to do. You can learn a lot by reading the chart, and then you go and you, that's how you, you know, you were saying gather some tools that you think you're going to need. It's how you gather your tools that you think you're going to need, and then you go and you apply your patient assessment skills or your assessment of skills of for looking at the motorcycle and look at subjective versus objective problems. You know, what is the patient feeling and what are they showing? So signs and symptoms and how they feel, and you put it all together and you try and pick the correct piece of equipment that you think is going to help them. They don't always see it that way, but, you know, they don't always like uh, doing the workout things that we do with them, or, you know, the long exercises that we do with them. Well, patients never want to be helpful and, and do what's best for them, you know. I mean, we just want you to give them a pill or tell them, push a button and say, hey, I'm good, right? I don't think they're all like that, but essentially, I mean... But I mean, if I could make everybody better by pushing a button or giving them a pill, I would too. Problem is, is we give too many pills right now. <laughs> that's that's very true. That's very true. Uh, they don't have any pills in our line of work to fix them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they do. No, they don't. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I don't know what kind of I don't know what kind of pills you're talking about. Well, I mean, there's no pill that I can do. To Pill, there's pills to make you pay attention. <laughs> no, but there's no pills that I can put in that ATV to fix ring seal or, or worn out valves. Or, you know. I'm sure we can find some. <laughs> I, I don't really think so, but probably not. When you go to the school and you teach the class, have you had the transfer where you were the teacher one minute and then the coworker the next? Where so you go from teaching a class and then you end up at the hospital and now your student is your coworker? Uh 
I haven't been there long enough for them to graduate and to become an actual coworker that way. But if some of the students are CNAs currently at the hospital, so they work as a nurse assistant or they work as a telemonitor or something in the hospital. So they're a coworker that way, but not a respiratory therapist. When I've had a, a doctor that works in one of the hospitals that you work at, Dr. Cheatham. Yeah. Um, and he was talking a lot about risk versus reward when we had our conversations about riding ATVs and, and taking you know, COVID shots and things like that. Um, he's a pretty down-to-earth guy. Is all of the hospital staff that you work with as laid back as he is? No. <laughs> I love Dr. Cheatham. He is, he is a brilliant man. I don't always, I mean, just like he doesn't always agree with me with methods of of doing things, but there's a hundred ways to skin a cat, you know, and he's super intelligent, so usually his ways most of the time the best, but um, he's he's one that's really fun to work with. I work with him in the neonatal ICU, and I, I love it down there. That's babies, right? Yeah, so they can be born. I, I think we accept them as low as 23 weeks. They only have less than a 10% chance of living at 23 weeks. And at 24 weeks, it's not much more than that. But we had, we have a very successful percentage of ones that make it. And, and a huge part of that is because of Dr. Cheetah. So you take it, somebody who's supposed to be born at 40 weeks. They're born at 26 weeks, so they're only half cooked, and you know we can sustain them and grow them outside of the womb like they would in a womb. Do you? How do you feed a baby that's small? So you feed them through what we call umbilical lines. So through a UVC, an umbilical vein you catheter. Top English. Yeah, an umbilical vein catheter. So when everybody's born. You have two arteries and a vein that comes out of your belly button. Everybody has it. And you put catheters down there. One catheter in the artery is to measure, monitor blood pressure. And the other one you can feed and, and what we give is TPN. So it's not food like you would think like baby formula or anything like that. But it's all the vitamins and nutrients and everything that they need in an IV form. Does that really give them all the nutrients they need to grow? Yeah. And and what about undeveloped lungs? What do you do when they're when they come out and their lungs haven't developed already? So we put them on a ventilator, or we have something called bubble CPAP. So we have a, a when you're in the womb itself, you have amniotic fluid in there, and that is what actually helps create the lungs and the alveoli sacs, and we can recreate that. To a point with what we call bubble CPAP and the inertia from the water itself and how it flows through the cannula and flows into the lungs acts like acts like the amniotic fluid and, and helps with that production that, of surfactant. So the lungs are always in under fluid as the child's uh, developing? In the womb, yeah. Well, when out, how about outside of the womb? How do you put fluid in their lungs when they're... You don't put fluid in it. Well, I mean, we do give them a medication called surfactant, which is like oil 
for their lungs to help them keep them open and oxygenate and, you know, but we don't always do that. But when a baby comes out, we have the vaginal squeeze. So the baby comes out, his head comes out, and then the shoulders pop through. And think of it as like you're squeegeeing out a water, you're squeegeeing out the, the amniotic fluid from the baby's lungs as he comes through the vaginal cavity. So it's a natural process of doing that. Yeah. And then if they if they have problems, we can give them a medication called surfactant and it's a lubricant it's like a lubricant, you know? And it goes in and it helps them with oxygenation and ventilation. Wow. I think Dr. Cheatham said he read one that was twenty two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You think about it, you put out your fa- your hand and that's about as small a baby as a ventilator. How do you integrate something that time? With a rhizoscope and a blade and an ET But it's so fragile. They're pretty hardy. <laughs> They're pretty hardy. <laughs> Bounce them across the room. They're good. Yeah, it's all right. Well, I mean, you think about it. When kids were born back in the day, when Grandpa was probably born, that doc probably held him up by his legs, beat him on the butt to make him cry. And, and you don't do that anymore? No. Why not? People sue. They don't, <laughs> like it. they don't like to spank their own kids. So when they see the doctor or somebody else spanking them, they get a little testy. <laughs> No, Gotta just, make them cry somehow, right? No, we just rub them on the back. Yeah? Flick their foot. You know, we got other ways to do it. Well, you and your sister came out crying, so we didn't have to do nothing. Yeah. Juliana's still crying. I was going to say that you are, but it's okay. No, my wife cured me. <laughs> <laughs> your dad was listening five pounds when he was born because he was a dream. Really? Yeah. I was transparent. You could see the, the movement in the veins you know, on his chest. How how many weeks was he? Uh, I was six weeks early or something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. So you were like 34 weeks? 33? So that bubble CPAP machine that we were talking about is most effective with somebody with a baby that's born at 30 weeks and you keep them on it until 34 weeks. But when was all that stuff built? Because you know I'm damn near a hundred. I don't know. I don't remember when Bubble CPAP was made. Off the top of my head. Yeah, well, they didn't have all those cool Fandango things when I was there. They had an oscillator, which we still use today, that was around when we were born. Yeah. What does the oscillator do? So it gives a lot of... Oscillator. It does. It oscillates. It gives a lot of short breaths, short, small breaths, but it gives a pressure to keep the alveoli open and it's just one protective strategy of ventilating a patient. They had they had mechanical ventilators back then too. To and a mechanical ventilator pushes those X amount of pressure of air in the lungs. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> you can could, could explain it exactly. So we have different, now we have different modes. Well, before, think of it like an accordion. Right. So it would have this, it would take about, oh, sorry. It would take an amount of air into this accordion and push it into the lungs. 
So it didn't. So it didn't suck the air out. It still doesn't suck the air out. Exhalation is passive. Ex- exhalation. You want to speak English here, first? So breathing out is completely passive. So there's no muscles causing that to happen. So your diaphragm pulls down, and you breathe in with a negative force. And then as you exhale, it's just your diaphragm coming back up, pushing it around. It's completely passive. Okay. So you're not forcing it out. Correct. If you're forcing it out, then you have a problem. Okay. Understand. Taking so. You remember uh, Turbo Tom? Yeah. And he was talking about Jeff Ox Cargola or whatever. Right. I can't remember his name exactly. Right. And he was saying that he was coughing up blood mm-hmm. and. Tom put his finger in the side of his lung yeah. and popped his lung and he could breathe and he was fine for a second. We do stuff like that. And it, in 100%, if they would have gotten a needle in there or taken a pin tube and stuck it in there to help keep the lung inflated, he probably, probably had a chance to live. I mean, I don't know. I was there. But he had, he had an increased chance to live. So we can put chest tubes or... There's more graphic portions of that story that we're going to get into. Yeah, I don't remember the whole story. I just remember being... I was only 14, 15. I had no medical background at that point. Yeah, I remember that story. Yeah, and I feel super bad. I'm sorry if any of his family is listening. He was a, he was fast. He was a great dude. I didn't mean any disrespect there. I just... Yeah, it was just a story that... Yeah, you know, stuck out to me from when I was a kid. Do you ever have to deal with any off-road uh, incidents or anything like that? A lot of snowmobiles where I'm at. Is it is it caused from the cold weather or is it caused from crashing on the snowmobile? Crashing. Generally, what's the what's the problem? You have to face crushed chests or lung head injuries. Head. They don't wear helmets. Um, I don't know. We've had a lot of razors too. A lot of KM or razors or whatever you want to call them, the side by sides. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of people do come in for that too. Uh, because here in California, you've got to wear a helmet when you're driving. You don't have to wear a helmet with anything in Idaho. Okay. So, so a lot of people aren't wearing their helmets. I don't want to say that. Assuming. I don't want to say that because I don't know for sure. But yeah, I would assume so. Or they have that Harley helmet that doesn't do anything. Right. So, I I don't know. (laughs) We're lucky to be here because your grandfather, when he was tuning bikes in the 60s, wouldn't wear his helmet either. He couldn't hear what was going on. (laughs) He figured it out, man. Figure it out. The funniest one was, is this this gentleman came in. He uh, he went really big down at the dunes on his in his razor side by side. I don't remember which kind it was, and that's probably good because the next part of the story we talked about about him. The trailing arm or one of the a arms broke, stuck into the sand. They had a video of it. He he did jump pretty dang far. And the A-arm broke, stuck into the sand, and he just went, rolled. 
So the tea kettle. Oh yeah, and his he had he had just bought it off the showroom floor. Oh wow! And the uh, the roll cage crunk crank filled in, and he they thought he was broke his neck, so they they paralyzed him for the flight over and had to intubate him, and he didn't have a broken neck or anything. I don't remember, but. I remember waking him up and pulling the tube out and him being like, where the hell am I? I thought I was down at the dance. <laughs> what happened? And then his wife showed him the video and I was like, that's cool. <laughs> I hope you got insurance on that thing, my friend. I'm sure his wife was not happy with you. No, she was more unhappy at the fact that their boy was with them. And how could he jump that big with their boy in the car? I walked out at that point. And if your mother only knew. My mom never knew? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I remember taking Ethan and making him cry in the back seat of the razor. We went testing that one time. Yeah, the rear shocks blew out on that thing. We were in that uh, four-seater and we were testing the new ECUs for Vortex. Right. In the 900. Yep. And the, and the rear shocks blew and we G'd out. And he was in a car seat in the back seat, and it probably took him 20 minutes to catch his breath. He was in a car seat. He was, he was like in nine. a car seat. He was like nine years old. He was in a car seat. Really? Yep. Who's that? Really? It's been that long ago. God. Now he's as tall as you, and you know his voice is changing. Oh, I was never calling for that today. Yeah, the, the, I remember we were getting ready to. We got the car all fixed, and we were getting ready to go back out again. And he goes, and I ask him, he says, you want to stay here with Brian or you want to go go with Grandpa and test the car? I'll stay with Brian. <laughs> yeah. He would not get back in that car for nothing. He would not do it. I don't blame him if you were driving. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. You always came back in one piece. Yeah, been a yeah they had to fly him back a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't on me. That was on myself. Yeah, he was the one controlling the throttle with that. No, I still blame that kid. You had the control of the throttle. I understand, but that kid like totally jinxed me. <laughs> that has nothing to do with it. I don't know, because I left my bike in neutral. Like that that kid came in and put that into my head that I like, I don't know. Do you ever even remember what I'm talking about? I don't remember totally. I just remember that we were talking about how to get hole shots and and starting procedures and everything like that. And I was over um, across the track. Um, I wasn't even I wasn't where I could see the first turn. I was where after they would go around the first turn, they would come to the second turn is where I was standing so that I could see that part. And um, the, the pack came around the corner, and you could see there was commotion. And they were thinking that it was two of the machines didn't come through. And there was another Kawasaki on the line. So I'm looking at that Cowie, and I'm going, let's get the wrong color. I'm wrong. And then somebody yelled, hey, it's your boy. And I ran over there, and... I don't even know how you got where you were laying in the middle of the wash, you know, 20 feet from the turn, you know, and I'm like, how the hell did you end up over here? And I don't even know where your quad was at that point. And, um, 
you were breathing and your eyes were open and you could move all your digits and it's kind of just kind of figured you were fine. And uh, that uh, EMT guy, he was a little irritated with me. Yeah, they called CPS on you. Well, <laughs> we weren't supposed to tell that part. Uh, you know, they called CPS because from the hospital, from the hospital, the hospital because it had nothing to do with you other than you telling me that if I ever scare you like that again, you're going to beat the shit out of me. I wasn't even talking about that. I was talking about the kid we were in staging, and that kid right beforehand walked up and he wanted my goggles or something. I don't know. And he was like nine, ten years old. And he was like, Have you ever been life flighted? And I was like, No. He's like, I was life flighted out here last week. I compound fractured my wrist, my wrist and I had to get life flighted out of oh, here. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. And I was like in staging. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, cool, whatever, you know. And then I. Ten minutes later, I'm in a freaking helicopter. Yep. So, I don't remember being conscious you were about any of it. I don't remember anything. I remember being in the MRI machine, and that's kind of where I was, like, came to, and that's what I remember. Was that... Was that before I got to the hospital? Yeah, so before you got to the hospital, they ran a bunch of tests, and I just remember being in the CT or in the MRI it, machine. It, it took so like forty-five loud. minutes for us to get there. Yeah, it got, it took I, forever. I don't remember anything. It took you like eight minutes to get there. Yeah, I was just like pissed. Oh, it's just down the road, you know. I mean, what hospital are you going to? And there's two hospitals with the same name. But we went. I was headed towards the wrong one first. And had to divert, you know. I will say that St. Joseph's, that hospital is... It was awesome. It was amazing. And I love it. I Honestly, I would I would go work there just because of the, my experience with that. But they didn't care for your dad a whole lot. But they did. They, I mean, come on. Let's that one nurse thought I was freaking... Well, that's demon, because... Demon spawn. <laughs> that's because you told me that... I needed to get my happy ass up and go race the next moto. Well, you did. You weren't hurt. Yeah. Okay. Pain's just weakness leaving the body. Just like when I was like, what, five when I broke my elbow and you took the cast off, you took me riding, and then the doctor... No, 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 that's not what happened. That's not what happened. That is what happened. No, no, you didn't have a cast. I had a soft cast. No, you didn't have a cast. You wanted to go riding so bad... And you had that XR80. Yeah. And you hadn't ridden it for a year because you were injured. And um, I think because they misdiagnosed the, the arm. And we went riding the week before your surgery because he said you would be down for nine months. Yeah. And you cried and, you know, your dad felt bad for you. So we went riding. And when the doctor found out we went riding, he threw a thing came out of his skin. Yeah. Because he says, do you not understand that there's nothing holding his arm together? <laughs> if he would have stuck his arm out to catch himself, it would have collapsed the whole arm. And instead of just a pin that we were putting in that day, they would have had to reconstruct your arm. You know, and it might not have ever been the same. I go, well, you didn't tell me that. If you told me that, I wouldn't have let him ride the motorcycle. I to put duct tape on it. <laughs> we still probably would have went riding, let's be honest. Dad. Well, maybe. I don't know. Mom would have heard, then probably not. Uh, if your mother would have heard about it, no, we wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have been riding at all. Well, when I, Grandma Robin went to the doctor with me, 
after I did my back. And Dr. Casey, the same one that did my arm surgery, came in and told me I was the luckiest kid in the entire world because less than a millimeter one way and I would be paralyzed for the rest of my life. Really? I didn't know that part. Yeah. So, that, you know, there's so many stories that you hear about this injury, that injury. You know, I would hate to do a scan of my body to find out what else is damaged. But you can't undo it all, and you had a great time, didn't you? Well, that's a, the, one of the biggest things in the medical field is, is what's normal for there's a, a range of normalcy and then people fall into different normal but what's normal for grandpa isn't normal for you and what's normal for you isn't normal for me but most of the people that work in the hospital think that the people like us are loons that we're just absolutely crazy why would you go and throw yourself on the ground at any miles an hour well I didn't have the intention to throw myself on the ground I had the intention to go a hundred miles an hour and pull it off. I don't. I don't think that the, as many of them do as you think. Well, most doctors are against extreme sports because no. of the injury. Nope. No, they're not. Some of them are sports, so that they get paid more. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's what we're looking at it as well. No, I. I don't think so. My aunt, your great aunt, Jerry, was adamantly motorcycles were, she called them murder cycles. And she says, I have documentation. Our hospital, you know, has all these uh, statistics of people without helmets getting hurt. And that was before it was mandatory. But she was so anti-motorcycle. Well, I mean, back at some point, there was, you, you know, you enlisted in the Navy, and then you went and bought a motorcycle, and then you threw yourself on the ground. You know, and 50% well, of them didn't make it. I can talk to you about that, because working in a dealership, it is amazing how many sailors didn't make the first service, because they... They wadded it up someplace along the line. Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and, I mean, it's not quite as bad now. I would assume. No, now you have to have some kind of schooling before you get a license, and you can't. My understanding is you can't get a you can't buy the fastest thing on the floor uh, for your first bike. Well, that's kind of makes sense, but most. Yeah. Most of the servicemen that we dealt with back in the 70s want to know how fast it goes, not how easy it is to stop it. Well, right. What's the point of yeah, they What's the point of freaking... I don't well, care. The point is you should know how to stop if you're going to go fast. Right. Right. Isn't that what the concrete's for? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what a lot of them use the concrete for, for stopping. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's a, it's, it's a permanent business. mark. It's we used to know how many new bikes we would go out and pick up because they run into something. That's and they're just totaled. They totaled an awful lot of them. And surprisingly, a lot of them didn't get just minor injuries to them. Take three different ones and put them together and build a good one. 
Now, usually it destroyed all the same pieces, so you didn't get the chance to do that. So you just call the, you know. Hey, it keeps us in business. <laughs> it keeps you in business, yeah. We, uh, I don't really like the wreck jobs. No. Because you know, to, to fix everything that's wrecked usually is, there's always hidden negatives. When, you, when it comes apart, you, you, you try to catch everything. You usually catch 80, 90% of it, but it's that, you know, 10 to 20% that you find after you're reassembling that is the gotcha. Because you, you didn't quote it in the estimate. And if you're dealing with insurance, it's difficult to get them to give you more money. If you're dealing with an individual, sometimes they understand. But when you get them to sign an estimate, you know, and, and pay it down, that they want that first figure, you know. Well, they only hear the first figure. Right. You give them 500 or 1,000, then it hits 1,000. That's the, that's the thing about the medical industry that bothers me. They don't have to tell you how much. <laughs> Grandpa and I were talking about this last night. I mean, you go in the hospital, and you know they they do all these things to you, and they run these tests, and and you don't have a say. You're just there on the ride, you know, and and then they hand you a bill. That's not true. You can refuse it at any point. But it's when they don't give you any information. How can you know to refuse or not? This little cut. What was I told? Forty-five hundred. Forty-five hundred dollars. Holy shit. For two stitches. For two stitches. Charles and I went to the, got in our car accident. I took Charles to the hospital because they thought he had a liver laceration. His his medical bill was $12,000. And it was just ER. He didn't go past the ER. Well, I went in for, you know, because I was having shortness of breath after I was done exercising. And exercise-induced asthma. Oh my God! You got you got heart issues and all that. I'm telling you, I don't have heart issues. We couldn't talk about So I went through all those heart tests, the treadmill, the diet, all that stuff. You know, and, and each person that's running the test is like, "Why are you here?" And I go because the doctor, for some unknown reason, thinks that I have a heart issue. It cost me forty one hundred dollars. I freaking wanted to spend it. So there's two different types. There's multiple different types of asthma. The two most common ones are extrinsic asthma or intrinsic asthma. Essentially exercise-induced or... Well, it's, and, and if you have just momentary shortness of breath, why do you do anything for it? That, when I got past a certain level of conditioning, it went away. You know? So I don't I don't understand why the freak out of the you know you know how the Spartans used to cure asthma cure asthma I put that in quotation marks uh, no with more vigorous exercise you just get better better conditioning yeah essentially I mean they had uh, so one of the king's sons Alexandros uh, in Gates of, Gates of Fire. Um, which is a, like a, it's a book, but it's fairly accurate. Um, he had asthma and they wouldn't let them help him at all. They beat the shit out of him half the time when he would start to have an asthma attack or make him run or do whatever. And yeah, that's, that's how they. Did, did he get, did he make it? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he did until he went to the gates of fire. 
So the Gates of Fire is the book you've seen in the movie Three Hundred. Yeah. So the the book Gates of Fire is the the actual accurate depiction of what that movie's based off of. Yeah, because the military uses that as a technical story to teach uh, technical advantage, basically, from what I'm told. Yeah, the Spartans were the most advanced soldiers uh, for probably thousands and thousands of years. Well, obviously, they did something wrong because they didn't make it. They were outnumbered. Yeah. I mean, just because you have 10,000 great soldiers does not mean that you can face 10 million. Yeah. Eventually. So, I, I don't know if it's true in the book, but they say that that the 300 at the Gates of Fire killed almost a million Persians. And there was only 300. There was only 300. <laughs> and didn't they all die in one battle at one time? No. No, they had some die in increments. What happened is, is they had... Um, I haven't finished the book yet. I have. Was it true that one guy betrayed him? But yeah, they had a guy who betrayed him. I wonder what would happen if he didn't betray him. He probably kept killing people. <laughs> they were badass dudes. I like that movie. Really good movie. Not changes. So, but thinking back, the warriors were smaller people. But the size of the swords and stuff they had, can you imagine the battles back then were more like just organized gang fights? And, and they were carrying these big clubs. And could you swing a baseball bat? Could you swing a baseball bat for three or four hours? No. Just as hard as you could? Well, that's the way they fought this physical... You know, and I, they I, were more physical, uh, ready for. Uh, they trained their whole lives. Yeah, but but you know how much stamina you'd have to have to wield some of the those those uh, weapons. I think that the and I could be wrong about this, but the sword that most of the knights or the guys used were around eighteen pounds, twenty five. According to the book of Gates of Fire, the 25 pounds around. No, 25 was the shield. The shield was 25 pounds. They, the Spartans used smaller swords than most people, but yeah, you, you could be probably right, actually. Yeah, but they were smaller people, too. Um, The Spartans were actually... Well, the Northmen, the Northmen, the Northmen were they, they said they were big dudes. They were six and the English, five, And the English fish. were probably smaller. Yeah, the English yeah. were around five seven was their average height, but the the Spartans were six foot. They were probably bigger men, from what I understand. Yeah, but still, and even weren't the Persians small? Persians were small, so the Persians had like special forces units essentially, and they sent in like four units, and the Spartans killed every single one, and then they. Like they depict in the movie, they stacked their bodies in front of the gates of fire with these special forces Persians. They stacked them up. And I guess the comment, we'll, we'll fight in the shade, was a true comment. 
<laughs> the king uh, told the guy, he go, the guy that's telling him that they have more archers than they do all of Spartans, and that they would block out the sun. He goes, that's fine, I don't mind fighting in the shade. <laughs> or I'll kill you in the shade then, or something. And they did, they, they killed a lot of people. With different mindsets, I mean, even... So the the king's right hand man, yeah, but and, not to interrupt, but you got organized gladiators, fighters. How do we know that these guys they killed so fast weren't just peasants and farmers that they got out of the field to come out and, and be? I'm sure some of them were, yeah. But you know, in that story, the uh, Leonidas asks the guy from the other from the from the was it the Greeks was it the Greeks yeah you know how many soldiers he brought with him you know and he started asking him and the guy was a potter and the guy was an artist and, and he brought 300 soldiers and the other guy didn't bring any soldiers you know? yeah so there was it a, a lot of people yeah it yeah. ends up being there was 4,400 roughly Soldiers completely Greeks fighting the Persians, but the 300 Spartans did most of the killing. Yeah. And uh, the reason why we know that they weren't fighting just farmers and stuff like that is because the king of the Persians was pissed. Was absolutely pissed because took, they took out all his best soldiers. He thought he could send in because they sent so few numbers. He's like, oh, I'll just send in three of my best units and murk them. And they just murked everybody. No matter what he did, he could not. They had, the best they had, they had a better tactical they had, advantage. They honestly were the first soldiers and first military to take into consideration landmark strategy stuff like that they were the, the start of all of that well the uh, british didn't learn from them <laughs> no, no not at all no line them up in red jerseys and, <laughs> yeah. and march them straight put, a, them. put an x on their chest and yeah put them out in the field there you go target practice well, looking at some of the the uh, movie battles which are supposed to be reenactments but Two sides, and you just have a group fires, steps back, and another guy gets in front of him, and the reload, so they can reload, and just see how many fall down. I would grab a bow and start shooting them with a bow. Well, they have archers yeah. too, but uh, but it's always funny that. Well, we they hate, thought that was the way. Yeah, we hate guerrilla warfare. Well, that's sneaky. But that's how we won. Yes. And then we are bitch at these other countries for doing it to us. They're doing it to us. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say that. Other than uh, we yeah. probably wouldn't have Englishmen right now if it wasn't for their brains. I will tell you that. So. Back in the Viking era, the only the Vikings took over most of England. They took over everything. Well, at one time, 
the Moors took over. The, there was all, all yeah. kinds of. They were conquered several times. Yeah. Well, I mean, they took over. But I'm saying the Vikings themselves took over France. They took over England. They took over all of it. The only reason what saved them is, is they were smarter and they built better weapons. So they started building. They built the crossbow. They built. Uh, what it's called, where it shoots a big metal rod out and has a chain attached to it. Yeah, that was what I They used to have good cannons, too. Yeah. They chain the balls together. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine seeing and, that coming uh, across the field at you? Yeah, you just freaking cry because you're done. You, you wouldn't have time to cry. Huh? And the, the Vikings didn't do that. They just they wanted to... They thought they, they, they wanted to fight and hand to hand, hand to hand, and they well, wanted that's to what do the two us. Just from the the movies and everything, to me it was just gang fights. Yeah, I mean, because they, they didn't all have the same weapon, they weren't all the same size, they didn't all have the same protective armor, shields and. Well, you look at the, you look at what the the Northmen thought. It was all ego driven, you know. How much, you know, it wasn't the fact that they did never got hit with a sword or never hurt. It was the fact that they didn't stop fighting. You know, they fought through the pain and the injuries, and and it wasn't just that they would they would scare the shit out of those Englishmen. Well, yeah, they would yeah. come in. They're they're bigger than them, and. Like we were just talking about, you know, Big the Greek sword. Yeah. But the Greeks bought, brought 4,000 potters and masons, and the Vikings were the 300 Spartans. They were, well, those were, they were Vikings, soldiers. So. I know, but you don't get what I'm saying. Yeah, I understand. They I understand. were most of the European English fighters back then were the Fjords, and they would raise them. And they would bring them to come fight. Most of them were farmers. Right. We got way off topic here. We're supposed to talk about saving lives, not taking lives. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, well, you have to try and having better soldiers out there <laughs> to kill them from getting to you. Yeah. Right, right, right. Anyway, I, 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 I want to thank you so much for sitting down with us. I know that this was a short trip for you, and um, you necessarily didn't have time to... To sit and talk with us, but I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I hope everybody enjoys it as much as as we do when we get to talking about these these different topics. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And if anybody's ever interested in becoming a respiratory therapist, come check us out at Idaho State University. Um, my email address is d a n n y d u n c a n the number two at isu.edu. Thank you very much and everybody have a great night. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at atvtalkpodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center with over 17 years experience. Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. 
More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.